Let's turn our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And today we are on verse 12. We'll be going through verses 12 to 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's read the word of our Lord in verse 12. Paul says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And let's pray again together. Our God, we come to you Again this afternoon, believing that all scripture is breathed out by you, through your Holy Spirit, and is profitable, is useful for us for correction and training and instruction and to train us in righteousness so that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped, completely equipped for the good works that you have prepared for us. And so we pray, God, that you would do this work through this portion of your word and help us as we hear that we would be receptive, that we would be ready to hear, eager to listen to your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I start with a tale of two cities. City number one you've probably never heard about. It's a small city of 3,000 people in southeast Virginia, named Franklin, Franklin, Virginia. Now, in Southeast Virginia, Franklin is famous for one thing, and that is its stench. Uh, If you drive to Franklin, you will know how close you are based on the strength of the terrible smell that you will smell. In the 1900s, there was a paper mill called Union Camp, that was one of the biggest, I think, in the country, maybe even in the world at that time. And so through producing all of this paper and the pollution that was being caused, it gave off this horrible smell. And it was constantly going. You could constantly see that smoke. And you can smell Franklin from miles away. It smelled of this kind of sulfury, rotten egg kind of smell. 
But then there's city number two, Hershey, Pennsylvania. Kids, you've been to Hershey? I remember the drive to Hershey. And I also smelled this smell in the air while I was riding in the car. And I said, what is that smell? And the people in the car said, that is the smell of chocolate. Because, of course, you know, in Hershey, Pennsylvania, is Hershey Chocolate Factory. Where they make the chocolate, and you can smell that chocolate from miles away. The delicious scent of chocolate uh, permeates Hershey, Pennsylvania. So you've got two cities. And this tale of two cities tells us that things can become known for by their smell. And that that smell could be good or bad. And you can tell that this is what Paul is talking to us about in this passage when he says that we are the aroma of Christ. We are those who spread the knowledge of God everywhere, speaking of himself as an apostle, but in general also of all believers. We are an aroma. We give off a fragrance, and people will be able to smell that smell. And so to some we will give off a delicious, sweet aroma. To others, we will give off a terrible stench. Now, the difference here is I don't want you to come away from this passage thinking, well, here's what I got to do. I got to be a good aroma. That's not what the passage is telling us. We're going to look at this. The passage is not saying be a good aroma. It's saying you are the aroma. And whether you're good or bad doesn't depend on the kind of aroma you are. You're just the aroma of Christ. But it depends on the person smelling, or in this case, the person listening, listening to the gospel. So the idea here is not for you to go out and be a good aroma. The idea here is for you to know that you already are the aroma of Christ wherever you go. What you are called to do is to be faithful to Christ. You're called to be what verse 17 says, not a peddler, but a man of sincerity and to speak about Christ. So that's what we want to look at as we go through this passage in verses 12 to 17. And you can see that it's broken up into three different parts that have called uh, God's parade, God's fragrance and God's speaker. And we start with the passage that begins by talking about the parade God's parade in verses 12 to 14. We remember from the context of uh, last time we were in 2 Corinthians that Paul is telling us about uh, why he didn't visit Corinth. Remember, he said it was to spare them. He didn't want to make another painful visit. And so instead, he wrote a letter that he mentions in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 2. He says, I wrote this painful letter. And he wrote this letter to try to reconcile with them, to try to lay out the problems and what they needed to do. And he told them of his love, his desire to reconcile. Well, back in those days, there's no post office. And so to send a letter, you have to send it with a messenger. And Titus was that messenger. Titus would come with a stack of letters from all the people that he had seen on his travels. And so Paul had a letter for the Corinthians from Titus. Titus visited Corinth and delivered the letter. And so now Paul wants to know, how did the people respond? 
How did they receive this letter? The Corinthians, are they still going to be mad at Paul? Or are they going to follow what he's written about? And are they want to reconcile? So Paul had made a plan with Titus. Let's meet up in this city, Troas. Now, Troas, if you kind of have a map in your head, uh, you, Paul's probably in Ephesus at this point. A little bit north is Troas, and there's kind of like a horseshoe. As next is Macedonia, and then there's Corinth. So Paul's plan is kind of to just go through that horseshoe to make his way towards Corinth and to meet Titus there in Troas. But we're going to see here that Titus isn't there. Titus didn't show up. Now let's see what, what he says about this in verse 12 again. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So Paul's plan is to not only meet Titus there, but everywhere Paul goes, he wants to preach and he wants to plant a church. So he's traveling around. He travels to Troas. He desires to plant a church. He's preaching the gospel there. And he says in verse 12, a door was opened in the Lord. Seems like there's good fruit People are receptive to his message. They're eager to what he is saying. But even though there's an open door, he says in verse 13, his spirit's not at rest. He's anxious. He's troubled because he doesn't find Titus there. You can imagine uh, without cell phones, without texting, how do you meet up with someone in a cross-continental trip? months apart right you say you say like uh, in in september hey i'll meet you in december in troas okay well all kinds of things could go wrong did paul forget the wrong day that he said he would meet him did paul not go to the spot that they were supposed to meet at did titus get there and then leave or has titus not gotten there at all so there are all kinds of reasons that paul would be wondering why is titus not here But his biggest worry is, what's going on with the Corinthians? That's why his spirit is not at rest. Are the Corinthians still mad at me? I mean, who knows? Maybe the Corinthians even even didn't want Titus to go and report to Paul. They they forbid him. We don't know. All kinds of thoughts, anxious thoughts would be going through Paul's mind. What is going on? with the Corinthians. And so this shows us already the love that he has for them, his concern for them, because his spirit's not at rest. He's worried about them. And so he leaves and he goes to Macedonia. He goes to Macedonia because that's probably, uh, well, we know, we know that that is where Titus is going to end up. Kind of like today, we have plain routes and schedules Paul knows, well, if he didn't make it to Troas, he must be in Macedonia because of the ships and the routes of the ships and the timing, all these things. So he goes off to Macedonia to meet uh, Titus. That story is going to get picked up in chapter 7. So we're going to have to come back many weeks from now to see what happens when he, he meets Titus. But notice this. An open door was there in Troas. But he leaves. He leaves and goes to Macedonia. Why? Because he's anxious about the trouble in Corinth. 
And that's a lesson that conflict in the church, disunity in the church, slows down the spread of the gospel. It harms the preaching of the gospel. Just imagine, this is imaginary, nothing like this is happening, but, you know, Pastor Sarver went to Boston Lake a couple weeks ago. And he preached, and he said there are many unbelievers there. He's at a baptism service. Imagine if a revival breaks out in Boston Lake, and, and dozens of these people are being saved, and they ask Pastor Sarver to come back and preach again. And maybe they say, come on, preach Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday night, because these people just want to hear the word, Pastor Sarver. And so he goes, and he's preaching, and he's preaching. And then here at our church, we start fighting. And we start causing all kinds of disunity amongst each other. You can imagine how that would be a distraction for Pastor Sarver. How is he going to be going off to another church in Boston Lake when there's so much going on that needs to be dealt with here? That would be a, a real-world, practical example of what could happen if there was disunity among us. And so when we fight, if we decide to battle over different things, that's not just an issue that hurts our church, which it does. But that would be an issue that hurts the kingdom of God. Because it distracts the preachers of the gospel and it distracts the gospel from spreading to other places. We see that very clearly in this example with Paul. A door was opened in the Lord, but because of a conflict, he could not continue preaching, but has to go on to Macedonia. Well, so then... From verse 13 to 14, we have a kind of transition. Like I said, we're breaking off from the story. And now Paul is going to give theological explanations of what's happening with his ministry. And he's going to do this all the way through chapters, all the way to chapter 7. And so he takes advantage of the story in 12 and 13 to then explain what's happening in verse 14. And so. 14 to 17. So look what he says in verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. So you see, he's, he's being led around Asia and Europe by God. Uh, he's going from Ephesus to Troas to Macedonia going all around, preaching the gospel. God is leading him, but he gives an explanation of what's happening as he's doing it. God is always leading him in triumphal procession. And so this is where we get the first point, God's parade. God is leading Paul in a parade, a triumphal procession. The first question we have to ask, okay, is what is this triumphal procession? Uh, a lot of people think that it's this idea that Paul is being led in a victory parade. Uh, so there's a very uh, common uh, understanding of a, of a background in Roman times of 
when a Roman general would go and win a battle, he would come back to Rome and he would go down the street with his soldiers and he'd be in this big chariot. There'd be a huge parade and they'd be marching towards the center of Rome. And so some people think that Paul is the victor as he's preaching the gospel. Christ is conquering, right? And, and so Paul is the Roman general celebrating his victories for the gospel. And if you have a New King James or NASB, it might lead you to think that because it uses the word triumph. God is leading us in triumph, and that's all it says. But the word is a triumphal procession. Uh, it's a specific type of this parade. And if you know a little bit more about the parade, you have a better understanding of what Paul is saying. So in this parade, not only did the Roman general go down the street, but he would also have captives from the, the battle that he won. So maybe the, the general, the strongest general of the enemy, he wouldn't be put to death on the battlefield, but they would capture him so that they can take him in the parade and humiliate him, force him to march. And so there's the victorious Roman general in his chariot with his defeated enemy parading in front of him. And everybody's mocking them and maybe spitting at them. So he's being mocked as he's led down the parade. And sometimes they would get to the end and they would publicly execute that captive the defeated soldiers. And so it seems better to understand that this is what Paul is saying about himself. Not that he's the victorious Roman general, but that he is the captured slave, being led even to his execution. Paul says this about himself in 1 Corinthians 4. God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, as facing the sentence of death, as the scum of the earth and the refuse of all things. God is holding up the apostles and the preachers of the gospel as the scum of the earth. That's what the world does. They, they mock you, they spit on you, and sometimes they execute you. Paul's saying, that's my life, that's my ministry. I'm always being led around by God to triumphal procession, mockery, and death. I'm a slave of God. God's the one leading him. But that then brings up the question, well, if that's true, why does he say, but thanks be to God? Thanks be to God? He's leading me around to be humiliated and shamed and, and beaten and even killed? Well, Paul is saying what Psalm 84 says. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I'd rather be a slave of God, led to my execution for him, than to be the wicked man I once was. He's saying what he said in Philippians 3. I used to have everything, but everything I have, I now count as rubbish. And so if, if you had a bunch of rubbish 
You, you lived in a, in a dumpster spiritually and God brought you out of the rubbish and now you have gain. You would say, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who leads me in triumphal procession through humiliation and death because I have been rescued from the rubbish and now I am a slave to him. As the hymn, Jesus, I, my cross, have taken, it says, Perish every fond ambition, all I've ever hoped or known. Yet, how rich is my condition? God and heaven are still my own. Go then, earthly fame and treasure. Come, disaster, scorn, and pain. In your service, pain is pleasure. With your favor, loss is gain. That's what Paul's saying. Bring on the scorn. Bring on the pain. Because I'm serving God. What a privilege I have to be able to serve God. So do you have that attitude? Are you thankful that God has rescued you and made you his captive? Uh, let's be honest. None, none of us wants disaster and scorn and pain in our lives. But we can be thankful to God that we're His. And this scorn comes because we're His. And because He has rescued us from what we had that was all rubbish. But now we have gained Christ. Is that your attitude? As God exhibits you as the least of all. So then he goes on to talk about God's fragrance in verses 14 to 16. How does God then use us as we are being paraded through the world? Let me start with for 14 again. He says, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him Everywhere, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. How does God use us? He uses us as a fragrance to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. In these Roman parades, as they would uh, go down the street, they would also be offering incense to the Roman gods. So people standing on the side of the road, they would see colorful smoke going up in the air and they would smell this sweet aroma of incense going on. And so as the parade goes down the street, the fragrance goes down the street. The aroma spreads throughout the city of Rome. And Paul is saying, I'm that soldier. As I'm being led down the street, I am I'm with me. It's being spread a fragrance as I travel around. Troas in Macedonia. This fragrance is the knowledge of God everywhere. You are the fragrance of the knowledge of God. People will know God through you. That's how God reveals himself to people. That's how the message of the gospel goes out. It goes out through people. You. You and me, Christians. 
This is another reason to give thanks to God. Thanks be to God that he would use someone like me to spread the fragrance of him. Think of you who are parents. You have this great opportunity to shape the life of human beings who are tiny, that belong to you. They are your family. You get to shape their minds and their hearts. Moms who stay at home. What a privilege it is that your children can be shaped by you so that you can give them the fragrance of the knowledge of God. They get to know God through you. And maybe some of you have parents or relatives who don't know Christ, and maybe they don't even know Christians, but they know you. You get to be the fragrance of the knowledge of God. Same goes for the people that you work with. How else will they know about God except through you? Wherever you go, you're giving off a fragrance. What is this fragrance? Well, he goes on in verse 15 to say, we are the aroma of Christ to God. The aroma that we give off is Christ. So it's the gospel. Wherever we go, we're not just spreading knowledge of God, but we're spreading knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The aroma of Christ is the message that sinners are under the wrath of God, that Jesus is truly God and truly man, that he is the only way for sinful people to be saved because he himself took that wrath of God on himself at the cross and rose from the dead and that everyone who repents and believes in him can be saved. That's the aroma that we are giving off, the aroma of Christ. But notice there, he says, we are the aroma of Christ to who? To God. First and foremost, it's God who smells you. You give off an aroma to God. And what do you smell like? You smell like Christ. This is the truth of justification in a metaphor about smells. That when God looks upon you, he does not smell the stench of your sin. Does not smell the death that is upon you. But he smells Christ. Because by faith, Christ takes your place and you are covered with his righteousness. Isaiah 64 verse 16 says that all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And so we bring our polluted garments and we think it's our best. God, look at all this good stuff I've done. And he's disgusted. It's filthy, nasty. One time, it's a longer story than I'm going to tell, but one time there were some rotten eggs in my coat pocket. And there was a smell in the closet. I had no idea where this terrible smell was coming from. Finally found the source. It was in my coat pocket. And so I reached in. And as soon as I grabbed the egg, it popped. Because there's so much gas. It had been rotting for so long. So much gas. And it covered my arm. And it popped all over the jacket. 
and uh, it was revolting, right? I, I was gagging, I almost threw up, it was terrible. So there's no way to clean off that thing. We had to throw it away. Imagine taking that stinky jacket and saying, here kids, I love you, here, here's a gift for you. All right, the gag. That's what we do. We bring our righteous deeds to God. God, look how much I love you. And God's gagging. Your selfishness, your pride in all your righteous deeds is revolting to me. But then when you put your faith in Christ, God smells the sweet aroma of Christ on you. So first you're the aroma of Christ to God, but you're also an aroma of Christ among people. He says there in verse 15, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one group, those who are saved, you're the smell of life. To another group, to those who are perishing, you're the smell of death. I read of a scientific study that you're not going to believe is true. You know, who knows, trust scientific studies, but uh, this did actually happen. The study was done, and they concluded that people become friends based on how one another smells. So you have a group, and people will want to talk to and become friends with a person, if you like the way they smell, and they like the way you smell, then you click, and you become friends. It's ridiculous, right? It sounds crazy. But apparently, this is actually what they have studied happens over and over again. Of course, you don't go around smelling people. Um, but we've got these chemicals, right? We've got these odors, and... And somehow our nose and our brain, you're subconsciously registering, hmm, oh, that person smells good. I want to be his friend. Weird, huh? Well, this is kind of what Paul is saying, though. You're going around. You're going to work. You go to the store. You talk on the phone to that customer service guy. Obviously, they're not going around sniffing you. That's weird. They smell something. They recognize something. They recognize the aroma of Christ on you. To those who are being saved, you smell great. They love the way Christ smells on you. They love the gospel. They love being around you. Christians like being around other Christians because Christians love to smell the aroma of Christ on other people. It's for those who are being saved. The Spirit is working in them. He's drawing people to himself. They recognize Christ and the gospel, and they love to hear the story. That's why when we're, we're, as a church, our job is not to attract people with a bunch of gimmicks and do all these special things. Our job is to preach Christ. And when we preach Christ, those who are being saved will recognize at that church I can go and smell the aroma of Christ. Those people have the aroma of Christ upon them. 
And it's not up to us to try to manipulate them to do certain things or to be saved. No, God is the one who saves them. And as they are being saved, drawn by the Spirit, they recognize Christ in the preaching of the gospel. But then there's also those who are perishing. Those who are perishing, when you are around them, you don't smell like spring to them. You smell like a corpse. You smell like death. That's what it says in verse 16. You have the fragrance of death to those who are death. How can that be? Well, you know, people use the word triggering a lot these days, and everything's a trigger for people. But triggering can be a real thing with something like PTSD. Uh, If you were in a bomb in Iraq, and there's a certain smell of that carnage that sticks with you and and you come back to the United States and you smell some kind of smell like that, that'll trigger your brain to go back to that scene and that'll cause PTSD. What Paul is saying is that an unbeliever has a knowledge of the law of God written on their hearts They have a knowledge of the judgment of God that is coming against them. And they are deeply trying to suppress that in their hearts. As Romans 1 says, they're suppressing the knowledge of God in them. And so your presence among them is a trigger. You are the constant reminder to them that God is real, that judgment is coming, and that they are facing hell. And they hate it because their whole life they're trying to suppress it, trying to drown it out with everything in the world so that they don't have to think about death. They don't have to think about their judgment. But then you come around with this aroma of Christ. And they can't explain it. They they can't really smell it, but subconsciously you're there as the reminder of death. So one way that this applies to us is that we ourselves need to be careful as we listen to the message of the gospel. God's word is living and active. God's word is a fire and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. God's word is doing something. You are either being saved Or you are being destroyed. That's the word perishing. It means destroyed. You are being destroyed. And the fragrance that you smell will either draw you more to Christ or it will draw you farther away from Christ. So what aroma do you smell? Does Christ smell like life to you or does he smell like death? For those of you who are kids or teenagers, you've grown up in this church, you hear many sermons. You hear two sermons a week at least in this church. And maybe it'll be 18 years of sermons. You got to decide. As the Spirit works in you, do you want this to be yours? Do you want to follow Christ? Is Christ the aroma of life to you? 
Or is it the aroma of death to you? Seek after Christ. Go to Christ. Find life and hope and grace in Jesus Christ. Don't continually reject and reject and reject and just have Christ be a reminder of more and more death to you. We're God's fragrance. But finally, he says, we are are God's speaker. In verse 17, he ends verse 16 by saying, who is sufficient for these things? But then he follows up with the word for in verse 17. Who is sufficient because of what I'm about to tell you? Because we're not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So the answer, who is sufficient, you know the answer, is nobody is sufficient. You're not sufficient. You're not sufficient to be the shaper of Christ in the hearts of your children because you know how much you sin against them. You know the example of Christ that you set in your home does not measure up to Christ himself. You know what you're like at your work and you know how you don't always have the fragrance of life and you're not always representing Christ well when you work, where you work. Who's sufficient for these things? Nobody really is sufficient for these things. We're depending on the grace of God. But what are we called to do in verse 17? What are we called to do? All that we're called to do is to not be peddlers, but to be men of sincerity. Don't be a peddler of the word of God. So many, he says, are peddlers. Corinth is full of peddlers of the word of God, full of men who are going around preaching, and they are softening the gospel, and they're trying to woo the Corinthians, and they're trying to do it to build their resumes and their platforms and their crowds so that they can get money. But Paul says, we're not going to be peddlers. A peddler... Reminds me, maybe I haven't really been to New York City. You guys have. Maybe this is a stereotype, but it reminds me of these guys in New York City with their fake Rolex watches. And they're selling them maybe as real Rolexes. So they're selling them for more money for a normal Rolex when in reality it costs them a lot less to get that watch themselves. And so a peddler. Their motive is money. The reason they peddle is to make more money. But they also have a method. Their method is to sell a fake. Their method is to water down something. The word here, peddler, was used for them, for people who watered down wine. So you would sell wine, but it only cost you a little bit of grape juice, and you just put a bunch of water on it, Sell it as if it was full wine. So you make more money that way. And your method is to water down your product. And so the temptation for those who preach the word of God and for any any Christian sharing the gospel, being the aroma of Christ, your temptation 
is to water down the gospel. Maybe you felt this, even, even in your work. The whole agenda of, of sexuality or gender comes up at work, and you're just like, I really I don't want to talk about this right now, you know? Certain things are very offensive. And it's going to change from culture to culture and time to time. But there is a temptation to water down the offensive parts of the word of God and the gospel. We are not peddlers. We will not change the message of the word of God. And we will not soften the truth for our own gain, for money or popularity or reputation, whatever it is. That is your responsibility, not just for those who preach in a pulpit, but your responsibility in the world. Do not soften the message. It might even cost you your job. But do not be a peddler of the word of God. We're also called to be men of sincerity. That's your job, to live a life as much as you can, to represent Christ, to be humble, to repent when you fail. That's a man of sincerity. But live like a Christian. Live like a Christian. The way you act here on Sundays, act that way tomorrow. Act that way this week, at home or at work. Be a man or a woman of sincerity. That's your job. And your job is to speak. As men of sincerity, he says, as commissioned by God, sent out by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. God has given us a commission. Commission is just to speak. That's how you're the aroma of Christ. You live out your faith as a man and woman of sincerity and you speak of Christ. But you speak in the sight of God, remember? God, when he listens to your speech, he wants to hear Christ. There's a saying of Spurgeon uh, when he was training pastors in his college. Somebody preached a sermon and Spurgeon said, No Christ in your sermon? Go home and come back when you have something to preach. And so that's true of pastors it's true of the apostle but we can say it's true of christians as well if you are never speaking of christ you are not fulfilling the commission that god has given you you speak in the sight of god god hears what you talk about god knows what you're saying he wants to smell christ He wants to hear Christ in your speech. Even with one another. Here's this great verse in Malachi 3.16. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. God pays attention to your lunch conversations at the table. He pays attention. Do these people fear the Lord when they speak with one another? 
and he has a book. He's keeping a log. <laughs> He's keeping a log of, of us. Ah, they feared the Lord in that conversation. They esteemed his name as they talked with one another. God wants you to speak of him. In his sight, we speak of Christ. So, just to summarize in conclusion, remember that you give off the aroma of Christ. To some, you'll smell like Franklin, Virginia. You smell like a stench. And maybe there will be people who, who run away when they see you coming. Because you're the aroma of death to them. To others, you'll smell like Hershey, Pennsylvania. You'll smell like chocolate. Oh, I love to be around that person. I love talking to that man, that woman. Because they bring life when they speak. They speak of Christ. But whether people like you or don't like you in that way, that's not your problem. That's, this is your responsibility. Is there in verse 17. Be sincere. Speak of Christ. Don't be a peddler. And we can thank God. Thank God that he would use us to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere we go. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we do give you many thanks for all of your benefits that you've bestowed upon us. For your vast mercy that you've shown towards sinful people like us. Thank you that though we are the least of all in this world, that we are like Christ, despised and rejected by men. And Christ says, though the world, if the world hates us, it hated him first. Help us then to live as people of sincerity. To live in thankfulness that you would use us. Lord, we pray that we would be the aroma of life to many. Please save people. People in our families, our children, people who come to our church, people that are in our workplace, people that we are friends with. Draw them to yourself as we are the aroma of Christ to them. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.